In the great green room, there was a telephone, and a red balloon, and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. Welcome to Rethinking the News. I'm your host, Samantha Liney Perfoss. So begins the classic children's book, Goodnight Moon, written by Margaret Wise Brown and illustrated by Clement Hurd. The book is celebrating its 75th anniversary on September 3rd. Set in the Great Green Room, the narrator highlights a variety of items around the room, such as kittens and mittens and a bowl full of mush, and then proceeds to wish these items good night as the night progresses. Today, I'm joined by Harry Bruinius to talk about the book's legacy as an important piece of children's literature. Here's our conversation. Harry, thanks so much for joining today. Do you mind introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about what you do at The Monitor? I'm the staff writer in New York City. The biggest part of my job is covering religion and politics, but I do a lot of other things as well. I've covered sports. I've covered other kinds of cultural issues. Yeah, that's my job here at The Monitor. So for this story, you wrote about the 75th anniversary of Goodnight Moon. You never really read Goodnight Moon until you were assigned the story. What was your impression? Well, I had heard of it. It's one of those major titles that runs through the cultural currents. But the experience of reading it for the first time, I was really surprised. I was surprised about how engaged I was uh, going through the panels and, and seeing the different quirks of this story that has made readers love it for so many decades. I was charmed by the nursery rhyme prose that yet, you know, is sort of modern and odd and elliptical. Uh, So I was really impressed by how different it was. Okay, be honest. Did you think it was at all creepy? You know, it wasn't not creepy. And (laughs) I was thinking about, you know, why I felt that way. The little bunny is alone. And then, you know, the the quiet old lady comes in, but it's not mother, it's not grandmother, it's a quiet old lady. So there's sort of a mystery to who she is, the silence of the sky and the stars outside. There's an immensity, which uh, leads to, you know, kind of the traditional feeling of dread or awe. Yeah, it's so hard to put into words, but there is this oddness to the book. And I didn't read it growing up, but I have a 10-month-old now, and we always hold up two books at bedtime, and he often chooses Goodnight Moon. And (laughs) at first it was baffling because I'm like, this book is just kind of weird. But now that I've read it so many times, I find myself reading it in this almost trance-like cadence, and it's grown on me a little bit. Yeah. In writing this story about the anniversary, what was it that people loved about the book? Why has it lasted so long? One of the themes that immediately came out with everyone that I talked to was this intergenerational experience. One of the characters in the story talked about being at a birthday party, and there were family members and friends everywhere from five to over 90, and they all had stories to tell about their experiences with the book. People have memories of reading it as a child, and then it becomes the storytelling that you do as a parent. So it was just interesting how generation by generation, you know, people react to this book enthusiastically. 
And even now when we talk about the book, it's actually considered quite innovative and even radical. Can you talk about that a little bit? It was really radical for its time. This approach to storytelling was kind of rooted in very simple details around a room. The parents and the child's experience reading it is searching the pictures for, you know, socks and mittens and kittens and a bowl full of mush. So that becomes just a different kind of immediate experience rather than a moral tale as nursery rhyme. And this was innovated for its time. I think that there was a kind of a conscious effort by Margaret Wise Brown and the illustrator Clement Hurd to do something more modern and rooted in a sociological and psychological understanding of childhood development. Well, speaking of the author, she herself was actually a pretty incredible woman with an interesting story. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Margaret Weiss Brown, you know, when she was younger, she attended the famous Bank Street Education School, who were kind of pioneers in the kinds of approaches to childhood development that uh, I was talking about. And she was also you know, sort of a woman who was ahead of her times. She lived with a woman, Blanche Ulrichs, that went by a male writer's name, Michael Strange, and she would dress like a man. So she kind of had, you might call, a queer sexuality. And then she's also writing these interesting, different, avant-garde children's stories, of which she had dozens, I think even hundreds, to her name. This was her lasting legacy. So I mentioned before, but this marks the 75th anniversary of this book. Do you think the book will continue to draw an audience? Well, you might know better than me, <laughs> since you're reading it, uh, you know, with your with <laughs> well, your according child. According to my son, yeah, <laughs> one of the the parents that I talked to said the exact same thing that this was one of his five year old son's favorite books. As a bedtime ritual, it seems to have found this sweet spot of both visual and auditory pleasure. It seems it isn't going away anytime soon. Well, thank you so much, Harry, for telling us a little bit more about everything you learned writing this story. Oh, it was a pleasure, and this was so fun. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to Harry's story and a transcript for this episode at csmonitor.com slash rethinkingthenews. The story was hosted by me, Samantha Liney Perfoss, and co-produced with Jingnan Pung and Luke Cregan. Edited by Clay Collins. Our sound engineers were Tim Malone and Noel Flat. Copyright by the Christian Science Monitor 2022.